Hello and welcome to The Good, The Bad and The Advertising, the show where we ask, if the world were our client, what would the brief be? In each episode, we look to tackle some of society's biggest challenges with the same creativity and strategic rigour that Adland employs to tackle a client brief. I'm Amy Williams, founder of Good Loop. I'm joined by my fabulous co-host, Dino Myers-Lampty, and our special guest this week is the one and only Rory Sutherland. After being fired from Ogilvy in 1989, he's now the vice chairman of Ogilvy UK and the founder of Ogilvy's industry-leaving behavioural science practice. Rory, you have been a colourful and valuable mentor to me in my career, and we're thrilled to have you join us on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. I, I think it's an incredibly worthy um, topic you've chosen. My great grumble with the ad industry is it has this magical thing, creativity, which is, you know, I mean, elsewhere in business, there isn't really a central repository for creative thinking. And yet we deploy what we do too narrowly. We, we mm. confine ourselves to Marcom solutions. And um, to be honest, you know, OK, that arose really because of the commission method of payment, where if you didn't effectively sell a client some paid media solutions, you didn't make any money. That hasn't been how we're paid since 1989. But the muscle memory is so strong, we still behave as though we were paid that way. Yeah, I think we'd all be much prouder of our industry if we applied it more broadly. And there are some really fantastic areas of society that we can that we can really have an impact on. So that's really the point of this show is to just inspire some of that thinking. You know, we never pretend to be experts in these topics, but it's just taking a little bit of time to consider how our expertise might help. And actually... This week's topic is a really interesting one. We're going to be talking about the art of persuasion. And I should start by holding my hands up and admitting I am extremely easily persuaded. I have a relentless economist subscription that comes in my letterbox every single week uh, because I couldn't say no to some charming bloke in a train station two years ago. And we're being persuaded to do things every single day. And as you say, Rory, often it's the advertising industry. Our industry is the architect of desire. And whether we are encouraging people to buy the 12 millionth new iPhone or invest three months salary in a shiny rock, we are pretty good at what we do. Persuasion's good, by the way. I think we often forget this. One of my observations about government in particular is that because it's run by economists who occasionally take... Sorry, it's run by lawyers, really, who occasionally take advice from economists. That's the phrase of Richard Thaler, the Nobel Prize winner, the man who co-wrote Nudge. And he wrote once, I think, in his column in the New York Times that his experience of Washington was that it's basically a load of lawyers who occasionally ask economists a question. Now, where this manifests itself is that government, because it's legally dominated tends to look at compulsion first, economic incentives second, and voluntary persuasion third. Now, you don't have to be a nutter libertarian to say, shouldn't it be the other way around? In other words, we should see what we can obtain voluntarily. And then if that fails, maybe we need to bribe people a bit or fine them occasionally. And if that fails, maybe we need to make it a legal requirement. But at least the order of approach should be reversed. And there's several reasons for this. I mean, take, take, for example, electric cars, okay? There are a lot of people, depending on individual circumstances, for whom electric cars make a lot of sense. There are a lot of people, you know, maybe someone who drives huge distances, for example, regularly, for whom electric cars currently don't make a lot of sense. Now, if you persuade people to use electric cars, the great thing is, without punishing anybody whose circumstances are different, you get the people for whom electric cars make sense to adopt them. And by the way, you know, in order to solve the climate change crisis, this isn't a case where we need everybody to adopt electric cars. If only 50% of people do, it makes a lot of difference. And so the great thing about persuasion is that if you have a good reason not to do something, you don't have to do it. I'll give you an example of this, which is something, by the way, in the environmental angle, which I've been looking at for a while. I, I've never understood why nobody promotes it, because it's a very, very simple way to reduce your carbon emissions, which is just washing machine, dishwasher, tumble dryer, which are three heavy users of electricity, which you can basically put on at any time of the day or night you want. Okay, You can't watch television at five o'clock in the morning because it's kind of the environment. Okay, That would be a bit weird. 
I mean, I can give it a good try. Uh, yes, I do a bit, I have to admit. But you can put your dishwasher on at 10 o'clock at night rather than at, say, 9 o'clock in the morning. And because the grid is more powered by sustainable and nuclear energy uh, late at night, proportionately, than it is during the day, and because you're not going to have a great peak in demand at 10 o'clock at night, okay, the amount of extra carbon generated by your dishwasher will be much, much lower at times of low electricity use than at times of high electricity use. So why don't we just, you know, Sky could put a little, if you wanted to get really subtle about this, Sky could put a little coloured blob on the telly, uh, you know, or your, you know, your Hive or your Amazon Alexa could glow a colour or flash a colour according to whether it's a good, bad or terrible time to use electricity, right? Now, the point about that is if you made it compulsory, there's a problem, right? Because some people have a, a washing machine that's above their neighbour's bedroom. So if they put their washing machine on at 10 o'clock at night, it'll hit the spin cycle just as their neighbour's trying to get to sleep, okay? Some people work nights, so you don't want them putting their tumble dryer on when they're not at home, just in case it catches fire, right? So this is a case where you want everybody who can do it easily to do it, but people who have a good reason not to do it, not to do it. Now, the problem with an economic incentive, or even worse, a government mandate, is because it's a blunt instrument, you end up punishing. Let, let's say you changed electricity prices, so they became much more expensive at, you know, uh, during the day than they were in the evening. Well, a consequence of that is that you're probably punishing people who work nights. If you make it a legal mandate, there are a whole bunch of people who have a good reason not to obey the law who you know, will effectively end up the wrong side of the law through no fault of their own. The great thing about persuasion is if you've got a good reason not to comply, that's fine. You don't. And so the people who are most susceptible to change, change. And the people who are least susceptible to change, don't. Because they say, I'd love to put my washing machine on at 10 o'clock at night, but my neighbour would go batshit crazy because the ruddy thing would start jumping around the room at one in the morning. So persuasion is a good way to move society forwards without creating these, these, these incentive structures. Well, the great thing is it's non-simultaneous, you see. So people can mm. adopt things either as and when is appropriate to them, but the change can also take place gradually, as with electric cars. You don't want everybody to suddenly buy an electric car simultaneously because the actually the electrical grid would suffer and uh, nobody would be able to charge their car at one of these funny chargers because there'd be a queue of, you know, 29 Teslas or whatever. So most organic change, what persuasion does is it naturally accelerates sensible organic changes in behaviour which are happening anyway and it allows them to happen at a time that suits people. And it allows the people who are particularly ill-suited to the change to opt out. Now, that's a much more elegant way of changing society than suddenly slamming some sort of tax incentive or, or tax penalty on everybody blindly and simultaneously. OK, so if persuasion is such a powerful tool and helps that organic shift, then I guess I have two questions. The first is... is Let's explore a little bit what persuasion is, some of the techniques, some of the principles that underpin persuasion. And then I'm also interested in where it isn't such a natural organic change, places where we are pushing water up a hill a bit yeah. more. And those also are very important for government policy, where we're asking people to do things that aren't inherently in their best interest, like, for example, paying taxes, right? Like that's not something that by choice, we're going to naturally opt to do more of, but it's something that is good for us and our society. It creates, you know, more, more um, equality and, and distributes wealth. So it's it's important, but I don't think it fits that model that you're describing of those who naturally would anyway can be, you know, can, can kind of lead the way. So let's start with that element of, of what is persuasion. Dina, I want to bring you in here. When was the last time you found yourself persuaded by someone and what technique did they use? Well, you mentioned The Economist just a minute ago about signing up to something years ago. And, and I signed up to quite a few things over this you know, pandemic period, all on subscription. And I keep on looking at those payments coming out going, I really must cancel that at some point. I really must use that at some point. You know, and, I, and I still haven't. And I, actually, just the other day, I, I cancelled um, a membership to something. And they called me up afterwards and they said, um, oh, you know, like, how was it and why are you cancelling? And I was just like, I'm just too busy to use it, you know, <laughs> but I was just too busy to even cancel it. And actually, I think that subscription is the ultimate, isn't it? Because it breaks down the price, 
you know, small little monthly payments. It doesn't really seem like much. I'm about to sign up to something else now as we speak, actually, as well. I'm about to sign up to Superhuman Email, which is $30 a month just to have email, <laughs> which is seems ludicrous. But but these things seem so you necessary. Do it, you know. No, no, well, yeah. the, question, the question you need to know is how easy is it to cancel when you sign up? Because this, mm-hmm. this actually, funnily enough, comes into the category of something Richard Thaler, who I mentioned earlier, calls sludge, not nudge. And he calls this the dark mm. side of nudging which is one of the things that annoyed him is when his book came out, there were obviously reviews of it all over the world, and he wanted to read the review in the London Times. Now, given the fact he lives in, actually, where does he live? Chicago and San Diego, I think Thaler lives, okay? He doesn't want to have a daily read of a British newspaper any more than I, you know, I want, actually, I want, I don't want to read, I, I want to read the Chicago Tribune, right? But I don't want to read it every day, okay? And so he signs up to the Times, on the web with an introductory offer in order to read the articles and reviews about his book and then discovers that I think to cancel, he has to make a phone call. Now, that the reason that sludge is that the process of cancelling subscription should be commensurately easy compared to the process of signing up and getting someone into a fur-lined trap where it's very attractive to walk in but impossible to escape. Now, the consequence of that, by the way, is that we've all been once bitten, twice shy by those sludge subscriptions. And as a result, we're unwilling to subscribe to lots of other things where, under you know, if we were assured of the fact that we could cancel easily, we'd probably be happy to sign up. I never subscribe to anything on Amazon. You know, they occasionally offer me products where I can have them delivered every three months and save money. There are two reasons for that, actually. I don't want weird things from Amazon arriving unexpectedly because I might be on holiday or something. But also, I'm now disproportionately... We had a cat once that caught its tail in an electric fire. Every time it came into the room, it would give this electric fire a massively wide berth for about the next two years. And that's how I feel about subscription, because I'm disproportionately cautious now. And so those people who actually perform sludge subscription benefit themselves in the short term, but in the longer term and for the rest of the category... They're doing immense damage, I think, because it's a bad form of persuasion. And I think Thaler's definition of what what he called libertarian paternalism, which is nudging, his definition of a successful nudge is one that doesn't occasion any subsequent regret. You know, if we persuade someone to do something, and now you've got to be a bit careful about setting that as the barrier, because we tend as humans to have a thing called adaptive preference formation, which is we tend to post-rationalise the things we do. You know, when was the last time you ever bought a luxury piece of clothing that you regretted? We never do. I mean, so, someone once told me, someone who worked for Littlewoods, a Littlewoods clients, almost an argument for buying luxury goods is that you never regret your extravagances. There's a strange thing in psychology, which is if you spend disproportionately more money on something, unless it proves to be a total disaster, generally we post-rationalise it. But nonetheless, Thaler's point is it's not a nudge if people regret doing it. I think, yeah, Robert Cialdini looks at this in his book as well, this ethics of persuasion. And I found it really interesting, this idea that it also has negative consequences. If the business uses persuasion techniques in a negative way, it self-selects certain types of employees. It creates a certain type of culture. It means your employees are more likely to swindle the business and cook the books and take extra days holiday because you've created a culture that that is inherently based on like accepting those um, unethical principles. If you if you want to read more about this, I'm writing about this in The Spectator this coming Friday, ah. which is that I think that job applications, uh, it's become so competitive getting into a management consulting firm, for example, that I think they're going to be recruiting a load of dark triad personalities. When you apply to something like McKinsey or Boston Consulting Group, okay, they employ algorithms to read the CVs and covering letters to determine who gets the first interview. Now, people know this, okay, and what they do, I'm not making this up, they write a CV and covering letter, perfectly sane CV and covering letter, and then at the bottom of the letter or the CV, they write loads of words like Nobel laureate or, you know, or or, um, double Olympic gold medalist or, you know, love spreadsheets. But then what they do is they change the text, the font colour to white. So it's invisible to humans, but visible to the algorithm. Now, my argument is that, one, 
If you're making the barrier to entry unbelievably hyper-competitive, the price you pay is, one, a huge homogeneity of mental type in the people who succeed. And, the, you know, the whole value, actually, the whole value of an ad agency, I think, in the modern world is precisely its cognitive diversity within the building. I don't think it's actually that we produce ads. I think it's a rare case of a business which can work for another business which actually prizes and values cognitive diversity and diversity of approach to some degree. But I also think that when you make things hyper-competitive, there's a wonderful experiment with chickens done by a man called Muir, which is if you breed from the top-laying hens, you actually end up with psycho-chickens who all peck each other to death. The way to breed chickens is to breed from the top-laying cages, not the top-laying hens, because that way you build in social capital measures into your breeding, not just individual capital measures. That's incredible. And it's a really it's a really fascinating lesson. But have a look at Muir's chicken work. He was at um, Purdue, I think. That's fascinating. And the couple of things you touched upon there. Firstly, this kind of cognitive diversity of creative people and creative agencies, but also the McKinsey point you made. I was speaking to someone the other day who said that um, they got through, you know, b- back in 20 years ago or something, they got through to like, you know, stage six or something of McKinsey. And they were told they were a little bit kind of too maverick. Yes. And, and I think that touched upon that point, really. You know, you, you do so well, you get so far, and then actually, no, you're just a little bit too creative for us. Because ultimately, that's what they want. They want, they want a bit of conformity and they want a bit of process following, I guess. The education system was really designed to produce people for the Indian civil service. The same as in China, you know, the whole purpose of education was to produce functionaries. It wasn't to produce, you know, disruptive thinkers. Well, I think this brings us nicely back to government policy, right? Because your point at the top of this conversation was that there's very homogenous thinking within the people that decide that government policy when it's led by lawyers and and (laughs) advised by economists. So taking tax as a topic, right, that is so, so important to our society. Tax systems raise revenue, they tackle inequality. A study by Tax Justice UK found that across the UK, People were willing to increase their taxes, and that has actually increased since the pandemic. It was 41% in March were willing to increase their taxes, and it was 46% in June. So the use of the NHS, the explicit value that it has brought, has really shifted people towards um, tax reform. However, £300 billion are lost every year to, to tax avoidance schemes across the world. Oh, it's more, it's more than that. I, I mean, I always, I always joke that I'm in the annoying tax bracket where I earn enough money to pay a lot of tax, but I don't earn so much money that I pay no tax whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Warren Buffett pays less tax than his assistant type stories. Yeah. Um, it, is, it really is quite phenomenal how, how, how our society has structured itself around those wealthy few. And I think I would love to start to narrow this brief down to thinking about tax reform, thinking about persuasion first and foremost and creating a a reframing for tax that is about being proud of of the civil service that it truly is. Do you want to go back one, which is I think what lawyers and economists do in attempting, in the case of economists, to model human behaviour on physics, but humans aren't like atoms, okay? They have context, they have perception, how they behave depends on a whole variety of contextual factors, okay? I mean, the same request will be received positively or negatively depending on how you phrase it. There's a big difference between shut the door, shut the fucking door, there's a draft, I wonder if you could shut the door, okay? They're all all a request to shut the door, but they all lead to a completely different emotional response. I mean, shut the fucking door may get someone to shut the door, but at the price that they subsequently hate you, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, there's a draft is a subtle way of getting someone to shut the door without actually mentioning the door at all. Okay, it's an oblique sort of creative solution. Now, if you try and design for universal truths, what you miss is the importance of context dependent behavior. And quite often you can solve a problem not by changing the reality, but by recontextualizing it. But if you're looking at a discipline like economics, which aims at a kind of universalism, that whole creative solution space is off limits to you because you're looking to solve the problem for everybody simultaneously, universally. And that generally means a blunt instrument. Now, one thing with tax, which I would do very heavily, is I would tax people a bit too much. 
and then give them an annual rebate. Now, the, one of the reasons for that is even if people take the rebate, it's probably an incentive to save because you could treat that almost as government-enforced saving where once a year you get a bit of a lump sum. But I would also say, okay, it's quite hard to get someone to write a cheque for the NHS for no reason at all. On the other hand, if you created a 50% club where people gave 50% of their rebate to the NHS, for example, it's much, much easier. And this is not just me saying this. This is also Shlomo Bonazzi at UCLA, okay? If you have, let, let's say I get rebated £1,000 by the um, HMRC every year. Let, let's just make it £1,000 for the purposes of neatness, okay? Mm-hmm. Then asking me to join a club where I forego 50% of the rebate for the NHS. And it has to be hypothecated. I don't think you could say, give five, you know, give 50% back to the government. But if you, if you made it the NHS or education, or I suppose defence, if you're that way inclined, but if you could hypothecate 50% of your rebate, I think it'd be quite easy to get some people. Now, what's interesting about this, right? Goes back to my earlier point. Okay. Let's say you're on, you, you're a bit skint and you've got four kids. Okay. No one's going to expect you to join that club. All right. Right. People go, no, no, of course, you know, but I've, you know, I had a lot of friends who are really, really left wing. Okay. And they were always burbling on about how tax should increase. They didn't have any kids. They had two incomes. They'd made a fortune out of the property market. Now, the nice thing about this, it, it would kind of put them on the spot, wouldn't it? Because mm-hmm. if you could make it a matter of public record, if you donated 50% of your rebate, the great thing about social judgment there is that nobody's expecting the poorer 50% or the constrained 50% or the younger people. No one's expecting younger people to give that money. But I think, you know, if you're my age and your kids have left home, I would feel under some social pressure to participate in that act of generosity. And the great thing there is it's voluntary and the reward mechanism is actually reputational rather than being financial. But reputation can be a terrible, just to be clear about this, reputation, you know, Twitter shaming and things can be a really, really horrible thing. It can be a horrible tool to play, but it does have a subtlety that other forms of persuasion don't necessarily, which is that no one's going to shame you if you're skint for not making a donation to the NHS. But they might if you're gratuitously rich. I also, in my research for this episode, I found an interesting little insight, which is this Tax Justice UK. They've done a huge amount of research and they just published a report in September of 2020. They found that there's actually a very positive perception of the wealthy amongst the British public. And this rich bashing, this quite um, divisive sort of undermining of the wealthy as that you know the the Warren Buffett one percent doesn't pay any money screw him like that narrative really doesn't work actually wealth is quite aspirational many see it as a route to security for their families so reframing the the highest taxpayers as the heroes of society and as an aspirational position is much more effective than 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 alienating them and, and and accusing them of sort of tax avoidance It is interesting, which is that virtue signalling or allegiance signalling to your peer group disproportionately leads to modes of communication which are slightly repellent to the people you need to persuade. Now, if you take Jeremy Corbyn's last election, this fascinated me because they had a proposal for tax increases which left you unaffected unless you earned more than £80,000 a year. Okay, which is a fairly small percentage of UK wage earners. And they looked at this, and I thought it would be far more popular than it was. As you've remarked, it didn't really gain any traction. Now, one, the Labour Party has always been slightly slightly muddled in its thinking because what it really wants to do is tax wealth. And it would always say tax cuts for millionaires would always be the language it would use to try and get a programme. But then it would propose income taxes. Okay, now that's actually not the same thing. Okay, you can be earning a very high salary while not being a millionaire by dint of just being young, for example, right? Okay, so they've all, there's this dishonest thing, which is there's great wealth inequality, but they've always sought to rebalance wealth inequality, not with wealth taxes or property taxes, which in my opinion would be fair, but actually with income tax. Income is not what makes you wealthy. It's what you need in order to get wealthy in the first place. Mm. Okay, yeah. 
And the interesting thing I think they also fail to notice is that not many people earn £80,000 a year, but a lot of people aspire to one day. And so if you're on one of those career paths where your job is, you know, I'm an assistant manager somewhere, and I hope to make it to regional manager by the time I'm 50. For everybody who earns £80,000 a year, there are probably 10 or 20 people who aspire to do it one day. Now, this raises a really interesting question about the tax system, by the way, which is that you're taxed on your income every year, independent of what you've earned in previous years. Okay, so let's imagine you're a teacher and you make it to headmaster towards the end of your working life. Well, suddenly you're taxed at 40%. I guess I don't know if they're headmasters who are taxed at 45%. But the three, four big bonus years you have at the end of your career where your kids have left home, suddenly you're taxed at this huge rate, okay, even though for the previous 20 years of work, you didn't earn all that much. Now, equally, someone who works for some merchant bank who's been earning in the top tax rate for, you know, since they were 28, they only pay 40%. Now, there's a guy called Roger L. Martin, who's a very good marketing thinker. He was the dean of the Rotman School at the University of Toronto. And he tried to introduce in Canada, with I think the Conservative Party, a cumulative tax rate. So what the rate at which you paid income tax depended on what you'd earned to date. So someone who'd earned a low salary and then towards the end of their life started earning big... For the first three years, if they hadn't earned that much previously, wouldn't pay a huge amount of tax on what you might call the payout. Because all business is to some degree a bit of a tournament. You know, you're not there just for the money you're earning now. You're there for the money you believe you can earn in the future. It's also worth noting that I believe there should be redistribution of wealth from the young to the old. And the property market has done exactly the opposite. And the reason I believe this is basically life experience, which is when I was young, I had bugger all money and there were lots of things I've needed. And now I'm old. My kids have just left to go to university. Okay, I have a lot more money. And to be honest, I need a lot less because, you know, I bought all my shit. Right. You know, over the previous, you know, I've worked at Ogilvy for 30 years. You know, over those previous 30 years, I've, you know, most of the, you know, I can go into a branch of Dixon's now. And if you gave me 2,000, admittedly, I spend most of my money on consumer technology because that's the saddo I am. But if you gave me a 2,000 pound voucher, a, a Dixon's voucher or PC World voucher and sent me in, I'd actually have trouble spending it. Okay. Because, you know, if there's any electronic shit I needed, I've probably got it already. But as you say, it's like a tournament and money is so divorced from need at these at these higher levels we're talking about. It's, it is. it's an achievement thing. It's a status thing. It's that I struggled through my youth and now I've earned my place. And that rite of passage, that cognitive structure is very, very difficult to break. And I think what you highlighted earlier is changing the context around tax paying, whether it's in the behaviour in the moment of the actual tax, whether you're filling out your tax form or whether it's in the context within which we present tax in society, I think that is a really interesting topic for us to dive in on. Just changing the language. So George, um, I think it's called George Lakoff at Berkeley, uh, who's a behavioural scientist, and he's always trying to help the American Democrats win elections because he says in many cases the language they use is terrible. But one of the things he complains about is he complains about phrases like tax relief which automatically position tax oh, as a burden. Completely. And also as something you should attempt to avoid. Completely crazy okay. as a sentence. Tax break. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Utterly crazy. Oh, it sounds like a holiday. And he, he doesn't even agree with the word tax. He thinks you should talk about social dues or something of that kind. In yeah, other words, and, and also you should actually, instead of making it seem as if the money disappears into some more, you should probably make much more explicit links with what your tax actually buys you and buys society as a whole. So one thing I I observed in the language of tax is this idea of a money jar, this idea of a container, and you as a citizen have to put money in, and then other people get their grubby mitts in and they take money out. And that is a very unhelpful metaphor. And the other thing I think in the language of economics is this very passive nature. It's all about trickle down and and rising tides lift all boats. It's, you know, let nature take its course. I think there's a really interesting reframing of the language to make it more cyclical, to make it more con- like more about reinvesting in society rather than putting your money in a money pot that you can't access, but other people can. Amy, that's um, very kind of close to the idea that I was kind of thinking of in terms of this kind of incentivizing for, for tax paying. 
if we could um, mm-hmm. align it a little bit more to the idea of investing. So everyone, you know, anyone that has any money and, you know, and starts to invest in things all get very excited about what they're investing in and all of the, the different kind of businesses they're supporting and the stories that that's creating. And, and could we do a similar thing in terms of with tax? So give people a little bit more control or perceived control over, you know, which pots their tax is going into. Uh, some element of choice. So is it education and defense? Is it health? Um, you know, some kind of parameters. And I must get these different departments of state to pitch for, uh, for investment from, from the public. You know what I really like about that idea, Dino? It, it reminds me, did you guys see the meme of the England team? And it said, you know, the England team without immigration. And it was sort of four players left on the pitch, right? And, and what I think was brilliant about that viral image is that it created this cognitive dissonance, which is there are two opposing beliefs. If, if you're someone that is racist, there are, you now have two opposing beliefs, which is one, you love the England team, and two, you don't think immigration is a good thing. And so one of those beliefs has to give. And that, and that simple image challenged that conception. And I think what your idea does, Dino, is the same thing, which is if you, almost if you had a section of your tax return form, you had to rank in importance to you the services it was going to fund. You had to physically say that, you know, you cared about schools or hospitals or roads. You're forcing people to express how much that tax matters to their safety and their well-being. By the way, immigration is an interesting question, I might add, because I think it conflated two things in the Brexit debate, okay? There's immigration, Mm. which is people who come here to make a life for themselves and invest in a locale or a community, okay? And there's freedom of movement, which is actually slightly different, if I may be blunt about it, okay? I think we've got to be careful because that was an interesting conflation, which is I think there are a lot of people, myself included, who are generally in favour of uh, immigration, okay? By the way, I don't think, from a racist point of view, I don't think we should actually give preference to European immigration or migration over, for example, Commonwealth or immigration from the rest of the world. So you could argue that the EU was actually slightly racist, okay, in terms of who it gave preferential admission to. But the other thing is that freedom of movement essentially means that people on the basis of expediency can just float around, essentially driving down wages, okay, Uh, you know, for five years of their life when it suits them and then clear off again. And it's only fair to say, you know, I'm not necessarily making a value judgment. It's a different thing. Freedom of movement and immigration are different things, actually. So, you know, quite often the language we use becomes very, very important in understanding. In fairness, you don't have to be against immigration to think that you should be capable of controlling it to some degree. Okay, because that was to some extent, I think, you know, I, I think it was unfair to tar every Brexit voter on the grounds that they were kind of, you know, massively xenophobic. I have to say, I sympathise with Farage there. I don't think it's an unreasonable thing for a country to at least potentially have control over its borders. As we've seen during a pandemic, by the way, in which, you oh, know... Yeah. And, and crucial for the welfare state yeah. to operate. And so, so, so there's a very interesting thing, weirdly. You know, I've got, a, I've got a Sikh friend in Canada whose mum's a Sikh and she sits around with a lot of old Canadians complaining about young people moving to Canada. And it sounds like a very weird thing, but her point was, look, you know, we basically up sticks and we moved here and we didn't really expect to see our friends and family back home more than once every four years when we moved. And her objection isn't to people doing what she had done. It's to people who basically turn up for five years, make a bit of money, clear off somewhere else. And it is different. You know, just as, you know, if you have a community of holiday homeowners, it's different from a community of Airbnb renters, Okay. Because one group is invested in the community and the other group isn't. And this, by the way, by the way, this may not be rational, but it's anthropology. Okay, generally we have in groups and out groups, and we we accept people into an in group given some degree of commitment. And the argument is that you know barriers to entry, if you like, are necessary to creating cohesion. And so you know, there's some there's some interesting anthropology going on here. But you know, I, I think it's a really interesting question, which is the language we use often, as with by the way, you know, tax breaks for millionaires. Well, no, no, it wasn't tax breaks for millionaires. A tax break for millionaires is the housing market, the fact that you're not taxed on capital gains on your primary residence. That's a tax break for millionaires because a huge amount of unearned income suddenly goes into your bank account completely untaxed. Now, income tax is slightly different. That's taxing people who are trying to be millionaires. Okay, and so it is. 
It is really interesting the extent to which language gets muddled and then thinking gets muddled as a consequence. We've talked about a few of those free nudges that would really be just a case of changing some language. You don't need a huge budget behind that. But then it's interesting to now think, right, if we did have some money to throw at this, you know, sky's the limit. Let's really think about what we could do to change things, to mix Mm. things up. I can kick off with a a million pound idea, which I think you've sort of talked about already, which is where people commit to something within their peer group and how that psychologically affects the commitment. So my suggestion would be a little bit like a career day. There's a sort of civil society class that's taught in schools. It's part of the school calendar. And it's where the school invites local parents to come in and to teach the class about civil responsibility, about what it means to be a good citizen, to your point, where what it means to actually commit and contribute to the community and to also talk about where tax money goes. And and this not only makes taxpayers heroes in the eyes of their own children, but it also really makes public commitments that they then feel the need to stay consistent. Why not also just advertise? I mean, the government, OK, you you know, we used to have public information films, follow the country code. You, you Neither of you is old enough to remember that. Okay, which would say, you know, uh, keep gates closed, don't keep your dog on a lead, don't drop litter, etc. I would be broadly in favour of advertising campaigns that just promote politeness. I think they work. And I think it would make a huge amount of difference because to some extent, your happiness is surprisingly dependent on having a number of just random positive interactions with other people. And the extent to which people are actually matey, polite, courteous, you know, both as drivers and as citizens, makes an enormous difference to the quality of life. You know, giving people the benefit of the doubt is a huge part of just Mm. civilised existence, you know, as well as actually going to schools, which I think is worthwhile, and talking about the whole community question. I actually wrote a piece in The Spectator, which is, you know, bring back the Green Cross Code Man, that actually telling people, you know, what good behaviour is will work. Now, you know, The Chinese do a bit of this now because they're a dictatorial regime. We've always regarded propaganda as something entirely insidious and unattractive. Okay, so we regard government advertising with massive suspicion. But as a result, we turn our back on a lot of positive potential uses for this kind of communication, which is just, you know, I'll give you a lovely example. Okay, if this is just an example of good motoring manners, okay, which uh, you'll notice this, Dino, okay, because you live in Tunbridge Wells, right? If you're in Tunbridge Wells or East Kent, okay, and uh, you pull over behind a line of parked cars to allow someone to come through in the other direction, okay, if the person doesn't raise their hand as a thank you, in Tunbridge Wells, that's on a par with paedophilia. You know, you're basically, you know, you're the worst person. (laughs) Now, in London, nobody bothers. You notice that. If you go to London, nobody bothers. You pull in, you do someone a favour, they just drive through. No one cares. They're all strangers. Nobody knows each other. You're anonymous. Once you get out to the country, those kind of little bits of good manners, you know, the equivalent of sort of you know, lorry drivers putting on their little hazard warning lights, you know, if you flash to tell them when it's OK to pull in, that kind of stuff. OK, I think that kind of stuff is actually weirdly, seemingly trivial, but it's actually at the basis of a civilised society. OK, uh, here's a great example. If you go into a car park and there's a car behind you, OK, and there are a few spaces available in the car park, Don't try and take the first space you can find, because that way the guy behind you has to wait while you park before he can park himself. Instead, go on to the second and third space, which means you can both park simultaneously. Okay. now I I do an ad campaign pointing that out. I I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing. Do you think that's enough to point it out? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people, I don't think it ever occurred to them. They just go, oh, there's a space. Yeah, it's like getting on a plane, isn't it? Yeah. It always frustrates me when people, you know, block the aisle to, um, you know, put their bags in, in the front when they're at, sitting at the front of the train. Like, get out of the way, let people yeah. get to their let back people of get through. Plane. Yeah. Let people get through and then put your bags in. Yeah, I guess in the train stations, it always says let people off first. There are those little nudges. I mean, the lovely, the lovely thing I always notice is that when you go through the x-ray machine at an airport, okay, what often happens is that, there's a backlog of people effectively taking their trays off, which means that more trays Antiquity, can't get through. Putting their shoes and there's back always on. A, yeah. a, a woman or a guy, and it's usually like a plumber called Dave or a you know a shop assistant or something you know called Julie. Who it's not the bloody Bain or McKinsey people who are sorting out the tray problem for everybody else. 
it's always I always notice it's always some ordinary sane person who's going, if I just get all these trays and, 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 and shunt them to that table over there, the people behind me won't have to wait so long. And those things are not always, they're not always absolutely obvious. But I think promoting pro-social behaviour where there's a low cost to you but a high gain to other people, perfectly sensible use of government money. Yeah. So what I do, okay, never have tax cuts. Have tax rebates, okay? Because yeah. A, with a tax cut, you don't even notice after two years because you've just got used to the new normal. And so you, the government gains electorally not at all, but nobody really appreciates it because it's become invisible. Okay, so have it a rebate. Then, of course, you'll give people a bit of a lump sum, which is actually better news for the finances of people who are living hand to mouth than giving people an extra drip drip of money. Because with a big lump sum once a year, you can sort out a significant problem, which is much more difficult to do if you're trying to live hand to mouth. But then the other thing is when you pay that tax cut in the shape of an annual rebate, you should encourage people in advance to pledge a certain amount of it to a cause they like. That will in turn, I, I think Dino's absolutely right. I think it might cause these government um, bodies to actually advertise what they do with the money. I always think there should be ads for the, you know, I, I think personally, I think Royal Mail's brilliant, right? There's a really interesting thing with all networked goods, which is they provide you with much better value for money than you realize, okay? You know, the fact that you can send a letter overnight from my house to Glasgow for 70p is, is phenomenal. phenomenal, okay? We don't talk enough about how we phenomenal don't talk, and, and my view, Let's give it a minute. Yeah, exactly. And so I, particularly true of network goods, which actually tend to... By the way, the maths are very, very interesting. The, the guy, Charles Babbage, who invented the computer, was also the guy who worked with Roland Hill on the mathematics of the Universal Postal Service. And Babbage was clever enough to realise, as a brilliant mathematician that the costs in postage aren't distance travelled, they're all in sorting and handling, and therefore you can have a universal postage price for the whole country. Because everybody logically thought you have to charge more the further the letter's travelling. But if you think about a truck with, I don't know, a truck can probably get, I don't know, 250,000 letters on it, right? The cost per letter of the Royal Mail truck travelling from Mount Pleasant in London to the central sorting office in Glasgow, when the truck has thousands of letters on it, the cost per letter is absolutely trivial. The fixed cost is at sorting and the, the last mile of delivery. Okay, So it was Babbage, mathematical genius, who worked that out. I love that. Because it's not absolutely obvious. So I always think that network goods should advertise more because we don't realise the brilliant value of money we're getting. Royal Mail is one of the most trusted brands in the UK. It was it was voted in the top five most trusted brands this year. I do I do think there is some brand equity that the government has that, that, that also can be leveraged much more. There's a very interesting thing. I love the fact, by the way, which is always, by the way, why we should pay call centre staff and customer facing staff much more than we do. Because, again, one of the things government tends to do is it tends to make certain jobs minimum wage because it becomes a kind of default. And one of the things I always notice is a really good call centre person. You know, they can keep my loyalty to a brand for an extra three years if you have a really good personal experience when you ring. And one of the fascinating things I love, which I think Alex Batchelor, who was marketing director of Royal Mail for a time, told me that your brand impression of Royal Mail, the single biggest indicator is whether you like your postman. Your postman? <laughs> yeah. You know, on the flip side, I think that is the single biggest indicator if someone's an asshole, is if they don't know the name of their postman. Yeah, yeah. Or uh, do you tip your postman at Christmas? That's an interesting one as well, because I don't think anybody in London does. I've always wondered. But here, the, the Christmas box for the postman is pretty much mandatory. I, I, don't, I, I assume yeah. it's entirely voluntary that, you know, if you, it, may, it may work in reverse, which is if you don't give your postman a Christmas present, your letters suddenly start taking three days to arrive. But... Um, <laughs> but that's that that's one of those things. I mean, one of the things I genuinely worry about actually is that tipping is not necessarily a bad thing because it's a way in which the customer can recognize value created in service industries, which is very difficult for the employer to measure or incentivize. Okay. So it's very difficult for a restaurant manager. He can he can judge whether the wait staff are actually taking the meals to the table quickly whether they're efficient, whether they turn up on time. All that stuff's really easy to measure from the point of view of the restaurateur. Whether they're charming to the customers and actually add value to the experience of the meal is very hard for a restaurant owner to manage. 
So one of the things I worry about is the disappearance of the £5 note and the disappearance of coinage. Because at some level, those gifts and those little exchanges, I usually give the Ocado bloke a couple of quid. I don't know if that makes me a weirdo. I, I never quite know when I give them a couple of quid whether that this is normal or whether I'm being slightly weird. Um, but actually, those things, if you think about it economically, what they do is they incentivize behaviors which are valuable to the customer, but which are very, very hard for the employer to actually quantify. And so, you know, we ought to, one of the things I have looked at, I mean, it's a really weird question, okay, but we should probably promote a culture of guilt, gift giving to the NHS. I'm not suggesting you leave a fiver for your GP when you go and visit, okay, that would get a bit weird. But some system where you can say thank you to people. You know, because, let, let, okay, if I'd received, I don't know, two grand's worth of treatment from the NHS and I'm a reasonably prosperous person, if there were a mechanism for me to give 400 quid to the hospital, and actually, there, there really isn't. Like, there really so isn't, no. We ran a lot of Good Loop campaigns over the last um, lockdown, obviously. And one of the main charities that our clients wanted to support was the NHS. So we ended up supporting NHS charities together. We, we raised hundreds of thousands of pounds for them. I mean, across the UK, the, the donations were pouring in. It was a charity that only was established, you know, in, in the pandemic to the point that they had to stop taking donations because they really only were set up to pay for iPads for people to talk to their loved ones when they weren't allowed into the hospital. You know, very sort of very peripheral services because they're not allowed to donate charity donations to the NHS. So millions of dollars, all of the Captain Tom donations, all of that went to this charity that was completely hamstrung by an inability to actually give money where it's helpful. I'm also in favour of the NHS having a budget that it can spend on discretionary things. Because having nice sofas in a waiting room fundamentally changes the consumer experience, okay? I've, I've always teasingly said that the reason the Danes don't mind paying a lot of tax is because Denmark, first of all, they have actually a lot of control over where the tax is spent because there's quite a lot of kind of uh, local democracy, but also because they tend to do things quite well. So I always jokingly said that waiting an hour for a medical appointment feels different if you're on, you know, if you're on some fairly attractive bit of furniture. It's very difficult ethically to justify that, but it does make a difference to the, uh, uh, I think it's kind of placebo effect, essentially, that we feel that a place that's actually well presented. Because um, yeah. my, 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 my father made an interesting point when he went to an NHS hospital, which was, he said, if you take my grand, my grandfather's a GP who died in the 1950s. He said, if you'd taken my grandfather to a branch of Tesco, he would have thought he'd gone to a parallel universe. You know, it would have been to someone who died in 1955. A modern branch of Tesco would have been mm -hmm. totally yeah. unrecognisable, like an East European, an East German going to a West German supermarket, OK? But he said, if you, weirdly, if you'd taken my grandfather to a hospital, it all would have been pretty, apart from the machines going beep, it all would have been pretty recognisable to him in the way it works. And mm -hmm. so presentational stuff, um, I think is actually, it's very difficult to ethically justify the expenditure unless the money is contributed voluntarily, but it does make a difference. The, the, you guys have kind of like stumbled upon what was going to be my kind of million dollar idea. Which, um, when you talked about kind of money and coins and the, the importance of the value of them, I mean, that was where I was thinking in terms of, can we, um, you know, use coins, but effectively digital, digital coins? So, you know, in, on the lines of blockchain and NFTs, and can we give people more recognition and credit for their, you know, their charitable or their, you know, their tax, tax giving? You could do what Waitrose does, OK? So you could pay a tax rebate in green plastic circles, OK? Of course, you don't know that because you haven't got a Waitrose in Tunbridge Wells, have you? No, no I mean, oh, it's, it's one, of the, one of the great anomalies of the the the, 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 the waitresses in Tunbridge, not Tunbridge Wells. Anyway, I, sorry, that's just a local wind up. Sorry about this, but you know, you have a green plastic disc which you pop towards something you care about. It would be a perfectly worthwhile thing to do because it gets greater engagement mm. and, and a feeling of autonomy and control increases the value of the thing you contribute to. I like the idea as well of people 
bragging about their you know their tax donations i mean it's almost like that's what people kind of need don't they some people yeah. need that yeah. some people need to know oh, i contributed to this bridge or whatever it was you know rather than just putting their name on it if we could just like you know have a little a digital world of the world where we could see you know what our money's gone towards i mean also you can sort of hold people to account a bit in the sense that no, okay. No, as I said, no one's going to expect any act of discretionary generosity from people who are kind of, you know, uh, living hand to mouth, nor should they expect it, okay? Now, the tax system can't, doesn't really capture the fact that you're bringing up four kids. Okay, you know, there's a bit of, you know, there, there, are, there are some, but I mean, nonetheless, okay, everybody acknowledges there are points in your life which are really expensive and there are periods in your life which aren't. Now, the tax system is completely blind to age and it's completely it's largely blind to parental status. Now, a system where people who are dual income earners with no kids were slightly socially pressured by other people into giving back half of their tax cut, pledging half of their tax cut somewhere else. And you could have basically a 25 percent club, a 50 percent club and a 75 percent club and a 100 percent club. OK, and you could get a car sticker, you know, and. You know, if you've got a Porsche, you you know, I th I think you're allowed to drive around in a fucking Porsche if you put a hundred percent club, you know, sticker in your car. You know, I think you have an extra legitimacy in terms of not. I mean, apart from anything else, it's signalling that you're not a psychopath. You know, you know what I mean. I mean, I mean, you know that 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 is yeah. that's an important motivation. I think I've got an evolutionary psychologist yeah. who's a friend, Jeffrey Miller. Who this is really interesting, by the way. Okay. And he believes that quite a lot of female dating behavior is actually designed to uncover psychopaths. So the fact that women will turn up for a date slightly late is, in his view, a psychological game because a reasonable person will go, oh, I only, only just got here myself. Traffic's terrible, right? Whereas a psychopath might lose it. And he said a really interesting thing would be, you know, if you bribed a waiter to tip soup on your male date's trousers, OK, during the course of the meal, a psychopath would tend to lose his temper with a waiter. Being shitty towards people in a uh, in a subordinate position is always a real no, no, isn't it? Right. Yeah. So if you went on a date and the guy was kind of dismissive to the waiter, that would be a massive kind of turn off. And so, you know, we're, we're already attuned to these costly signals that show that when, you know, broadly speaking, uh, you know, we're not purely trapped in the icy water of egotistical calculation, that we actually spend some time seeing things from other people's point of view. And we're keen to signal that fact. And so you might as well profit from that in the tax system, because I think it's innate to non-psychopathic human beings. I might I build on your idea, Dino, of the, the sort of tokenized giving. I was thinking about the SEIS scheme. So for those that aren't familiar, it's a, a scheme that essentially is a very generous tax break for people that invest in startups. Yeah. Goodloop had SEIS funding back in the day. It's you, know, you get 50% back as a tax saving and then loss relief and exempt from capital gains. Like it's incredibly generous. And to your point, Rory, it's a tax break. It's psychologically you're rewarded for for avoiding tax, um, yes. it feels incredibly, incredibly counterintuitive. Well, there's a there's a counter to this, by the way, which is I had a big argument with some people at the Bank of England. Well, it wasn't really an argument, but uh, when you increase the ISA allowance to ten or twenty thousand pounds, it was doubly bad because one, you know, do people who can save twenty thousand pounds out of taxed income deserve a tax break, a further tax break? You know, I'm not, I'm not you know, I'm right of centre politically, but I'd say that's a highly questionable thing to offer people. Mm -hmm. because it's disproportionately advantageous to people who are cash and asset rich. But the second thing is it took away the incentive for poorer people to save. Because I said, when the ISA maximum was £3,000, OK, you felt, well, I'd better put 1500 quid in, because otherwise I'm missing out. I'm never going to get that chance again. Once you made it £20,000, normal people felt, well, there's no particular urgency, because I can put twice the money in next year. And then they never did. Yeah, it's so interesting. So the scarcity value that was created by that £3,000 tax window with the ISA was a really healthy incentive to people on the borderline of saving to get them to save. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you made it £20,000, it removed the impetus to take advantage of it right now. It's so true. And I think that, like, to, to go back to the, um, the, the SEIS thing, I just wanted to add, I think it's wonderful when individuals invest in small businesses. My company wouldn't exist without those people that gave us a chance right at the beginning. 
And I would love to take your cryptocurrency, Dino, and apply it to an investment grant that's match funded by the government. So rather than a break, you get um, your investment doubled by the government. So again, it, it's sort of it's capping some of the risk, but it's not framing it within this reward for playing the tax system. And what I would love as a company, having now benefited from that system and also from lots of government grants like Innovate UK, is um, for those successful businesses that have grown as part of that investment to then commit to put some of their profits back into the programme. So actually getting small businesses aligned to this civil society and the responsibility and the, and the, the debt that they have to those that invested in them early stages. Do you, do you want an even weirder idea, okay, which I've proposed and I've never had anybody... Sure. Re- so we have parallel currencies already, not just Bitcoin. We have things like BA Avios, okay? We have, you know, Tesco Club Card. They're parallel currencies. And the rules over how you earn them and how you spend them are different to the rules for money, okay? Now, here's a weird thought. What if you created a currency with which you could buy additional government services? Like you could buy a GP's home visit. Okay. Now, we would regard that as absolutely repellent because you'd set a price for it and rich people would be able to get the GP to visit at home and poor people wouldn't. Now, here's the thing. What if you gave everybody 200 government units a year? Okay. And if you wanted to buy additional government units, it was proportionate to your wealth. So the price of an additional unit of government service was £100 for a hedge fund manager and £10 or £5 for an ordinary person. Okay. Now, what you'd have then is a measure of willingness to pay independent of ability to pay. So you could use the economic Adam Smith thing of economics, which is the great thing about money is it gets people to tell the truth about what they want. There's a valuable quality of money which is independent of actually how, of earning it which is simply that if you charge a pre, you know, um, okay, airline seats. How do you know? Some people want more space than others. You, at the moment, you use the, you know, the, the, the cash nexus to determine who gets a, a bigger seat on an airplane. Well, we'll probably leave that in the private sector, but it would be interesting if someone who'd broken their leg could spend 10 zog points, you know, to have an upgrade to premium economy. Now, now, if you did that with government services, now, you know, if I wanted a parking permit, okay, maybe that should be five zog points. Now, I can either use my existing allocation of zog points for my parking permit, or I could use zog points on the, um, uh, the congestion charge, okay? Another thing with the congestion charge, by the way, which is really interesting to me, if you want to disincentivize driving into London, at the moment, they charge per trip. I think you should charge people who go into London a lot more than people who go in occasionally. Okay, I'll put this my way, okay? We don't live in Maoist China. We don't live in communist Russia. I think everybody in Britain has a right to drive down the Mall for free once a year. And I think the way it should work is in any calendar year, you should have three free drives into London. Then the next five drives should maybe be a fiver, and then the next five are ten, and then it gets higher and higher, unless you have special circumstances. Again, if you're an essential worker, you should pay a lot less. Now, if you created government parallel currencies, a bit like, you know, HMG miles, I think you could actually redistribute wealth while not losing sight of willingness to pay, which is a useful measure because it proves what you really care about. Because otherwise, we'll be forced to compete for government services that are in scarce supply by trying to game the system. Okay, very simple economic example. Let's say you have an aquarium and it's very popular and it's free. And everybody has to queue for three hours before they can go to the aquarium. The problem with that is that making people wait to determine who wants to go and see the aquarium is a very inefficient in time terms way of deciding who gets to see the fish. Okay. now you can argue, well, it's very democratic. But on the other hand, nobody gets any money out of it. The aquarium doesn't get any money out of it. And actually, it it wastes three hours of people's time standing in a queue. So the great thing with the price mechanism is it determines accurately Now, Disney tried a parallel currency. It actually backfired, which is you had a certain number of tickets to jump the queue on certain rides, and some rides cost more than others. So Disney created a parallel currency for the different rides at a resort so you could somehow avoid queuing with certain rides by spending some of a currency of which you had a finite amount yourself. Okay, so admission to the park came with a certain number of units. It backfired for a weird reason, which is everybody wanted to go on the high-priced rides because they inferred they were better. 
Okay, so that it, it weirdly backfired for Disney because nobody wanted to go on the two ticket rides because they assumed they were not very popular and therefore shit. And therefore, if you priced a ride at a very high price, you actually increased demand for that ride. But leaving that aside, what you know, uh, Disney is probably the ultimate service business in the world in many respects. And actually, for the governments to learn from Disney, bizarre as it may seem, wouldn't necessarily be a crazy thing to do. Absolutely. And I mean, Disney does have posters all over the parks promoting politeness, talking about the ways to behave. Yeah, yeah. There are rules, social rules in Disney. And also, you see, if, if, if Disney ran a hospital, right, you'd have two completely separate chains of corridors where the gruesome stuff took place backstage. You, you, know, you know how in Disney you can apparently get, you, they can get around, the people who work in Disney can get around the park using this network of tunnels so Mickey can suddenly appear somewhere without basically having to, you know, wander through the thing in a bedraggled You don't suit. want to see Mickey you know, on a bus having a fag, do you? No, I do. But <laughs> but yeah, funny enough, I'll tell you the funniest story. I went to one of these Sonne Lumiere in France. And you know, you know those weird things where people dressed up? It, it was rubbish, OK? It was in some castle in France, and they were putting on some medieval pageant bollocks. I was just there to visit the castle. And I got bored and wandered into the wood, OK? Because I just got bored, and I went for a walk in the wood. I basically found 15 people in medieval costume all sharing a Amazing. joint. It was a funny thing. <laughs> <laughs> basically, stoned Maid Marian kind of thing. <laughs> Um, I've still got in mind if Disney run a hospital. I mean, you'd never want to leave. No, that is that problem. Yeah, <laughs> that would be yeah, the bed blockers, massive problem because it's. Uh, but but I mean, borrowing from those things is okay. You know, I mean, I, I think because um, what I always say about the, the great thing about behavioral science is it, it's pattern recognition, and you can spot something. Well, I'll give you an example. I had the insight about the ISA by looking at a program for KFC when you had chips for a dollar in Australia where the thing that got everybody to buy chips was saying maximum four per customer. And I realised that maximum £3,000 per customer was what made the ISA work. Now, if you say of fries, maximum 40 per customer, it doesn't really work. And so, so what's, what's so fascinating about behavioural science is by codifying behavioural insights, you can literally take something which sells galaxy chocolate or take something which sells chips. For, I mean, I actually... <laughs> you can believe this, OK... There's this work of this extraordinarily eminent French social physicist on minority rule, which Nassim Taleb has very helpfully publicised, which is the idea that small groups of intransigent people have a disproportionate effect on uh, on any sort of collective decision. And so this French physicist, uh, this ended up inspiring KFC in Australia to launch Build Your Own Bucket. But actually, one of the things I, I always say about marketing and advertising is don't have a status preoccupation. If you're obsessed with producing TV commercials for status reasons, if you want to solve high status problems, the point is you can learn from doing trivial things and then you can redeploy that insight somewhere completely different. And I always think we make this mistake of always looking for, because the great thing about complex systems is there are butterfly effects. You could tweak a tiny little variant on the web page and you can have a transformative effect on behavior. And we should spend a lot of time looking for these things, but often it's beneath our dignity to do so because a board director doesn't want to spend his time talking about website optimization. But that might be the best use of his time. That is really interesting. It's, I mean, it comes back to those little details in the waiting room that make it so much more comfortable to be there. And I, I, I think, you know, you've perfectly summarised you know, what inspired Dino and I to start this podcast, which is the idea of taking inspiration from other places and applying it to some of... That, you know the issues that truly matter and and I've really enjoyed hearing everything that you have to say Rory thank you so much for joining you know we've talked about promoting politeness and and creating some social accountability for wankers that drive Porsches yeah uh, and spending Zog points you've got a Porsche <laughs> but you're not a psychopath okay that's that that's the perfect guy the guy with a Porsche Absolutely. but not a psychopath I mean pretty good yeah exactly right so <laughs> There's an article somewhere, I think it's in the Atlantic, which always interested me, which is should you have NHS Prime or NHS Premium? In other words, government, by dint of being completely egalitarian, can't make extra money through price discrimination. Now, a lot of commercial organisations really make very little money on the basic service they provide. And make cinemas, the classic example, you make all the money on the popcorn, right? OK, cinema is basically a popcorn and hot dog vending operation with a bucket of Coke or a slushy, right? Which shows films at cost. That's basically how cinema works. Now, 
The NHS could do that if they worked out a mechanism that made it socially acceptable. In other words, you get trivial improvements in, you know, in experience in exchange for quite a lot of additional margin. And the sad thing is that it's it's happening anyway, but it's just private healthcare, which rather than being complementary, is actually extracting resources. So, you know, there's, there is scope for what you might call NHS popcorn. You know, uh, what, what, are, what are those things? Because cinema wouldn't make any money if they weren't allowed to if they weren't allowed to run concessions for catering. It'll be basically a mugs game. And so gov- government by dint of, you know, I, I'm in favour. I, I don't forget about I, the guy Microsoft said about 20, 25% of wealth redistribution happens through the pricing mechanism. So EasyJet is actually a redistributor of wealth. OK, now it's unfair to people who have to travel in the school holidays. But broadly speaking, retired people and students, right, they go on holiday in like early June. If you can go on holiday at a weird time of year, you pay about a third of the price for your holiday than you do if you're going at peak times. Now, in the case, not fair for the, in the case of people with kids, but in the case of a lot of people, retired people, that's a form of wealth redistribution. The trains are to some extent, OK, because if you're working, you pay a lot more to travel into London than if you can go off peak. And so a lot of wealth redistribution actually happens through the market mechanism, not through the tax mechanism. It's just, it's just being thoughtful in how we reframe these decisions so that they don't seem discriminatory and they do seem like opportunities. So I'll end on this one big sentence, which is the great art of the great art of marketing, advertising and creativity is that you solve problems by recontextualizing them. The great problem of government is it uses economics and law, which tend to be context free modes of thinking. You're looking to generalize, not to exceptionalize. And you're assuming the solution has to be the same for everybody. And so that business of, as you said, if you've just left a hospital, which has treated you very well, you're probably pretty ready to put a few hundred quid in a bucket if you're a reasonably wealthy person. And yet, because it's context free, nobody thinks to do that. Okay, And that's where marketing thought is so important, because essentially you creative ideas tend to arise because you think of something in a different context or you reframe something. What a perfect summary. Thank you so much, Rory. Absolute pleasure. But if you want me back, if you want some of my colleagues back from the behavioural science practice, ecstatic, anytime you like. Love it. Love what you're doing. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Rory. Next week, we'll be chatting with the founder of the global men's health charity, Movember. So be sure to subscribe and tune in for that one. That just about wraps it up. Uh, If you're listening to this and you feel inspired, or if you have an idea that we haven't thought of, then please do get in touch. We'll put our LinkedIn profiles in the show notes. And all that's left to do is to thank Rory for joining us and to thank you, our listeners, for listening. 